Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast, Reclaiming the Bible and Exalting Christ, one verse at a time. My name is Tyler, and I am excited to be with you this Sunday afternoon. Um, Thank you for tuning in. Uh, If this is your first time, I want to say welcome. We are an internet-based ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word, one verse at a time. We have... Um, people tuning in from all across the world, and I want to say welcome. We have people listening as far away as the Philippines. I'm honored that you would tune into this little podcast out in the middle of nowhere. But we have been going verse by verse through the book of Romans, which is Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And he is basically laying out the gospel in great detail. To he's What it is is he's trying to come to Rome. He's trying to secure funding for his missions, and he's basically laying out, this is the gospel that I would preach if I had the opportunity to come to Rome. And he has been expositing the gospel bit by bit by bit this thus far. And we've seen many different angles, many different nuances to the gospel, all good things. And we get to Romans 9, and this is a chapter we don't always like to read as much as Romans 8 or Romans or some of these other ones Romans 9 is highly contested and if you've been tracking with the last couple installments um, you've probably seen that now when we talk about things like predestination and election and free will and some of these things people have a tendency to bristle and this is a hard text to navigate I don't care how much schooling you have this is a hard text it does not sit well in our human minds This isn't a matter of you can just learn it and be good. This is not an academic thing. The Bible is not purely academic. This is the actual words of God. Not just the word of God. It is the words of God. This is what thus saith the Lord. And Romans 9 is a bit of an exercise. There's there's a lot in, in this Bible that we cannot fully understand in our human minds. That we have to taken faith know that this is what god does this is how he operates and that he does not have to answer to me 
And I want to put that out there as we continue through Romans 9. We will be finishing that this chapter this week, and we will continue on to Romans chapter 10. We will be picking up where we left off last week with verse 13, where it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And that's a that's a bold statement. That's a statement we kind of scratch our heads at a little bit of how God could say something like that. But this is also something that Paul was no stranger to. These are questions that have been asked before. We're not the first person to have questions about this passage, and we certainly won't be the last. And if you have questions about this passage, that's okay. I'm not saying this as the, the authority on Romans 9. I do not have this fully worked out either. Uh, I believe that when we talk about things like election, that there is a point of what we can understand, and we cannot go past that point. I don't care how high of an IQ you have, how much education you have acquired, how many books you've read. There's a point to God's purposes that goes beyond our ability to comprehend. And if you have questions and you are wrestling with this passage, that is okay. The word Israel literally means to wrestle with God. And I encourage you to dig into the word of God and see where it leads. To ask those questions and seek God for the answers. And as we continue through Romans 9, that's my encouragement to you. To seek the scriptures, to search the scriptures, to use that old language to dig deep into this well and see what God reveals to you. And so with that, let's read verses 14 all the way through to the end of the chapter. And it says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So when he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory? for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Israel, as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, that is a lot. But this is something we, again, have to take in a chunk. And there's there are big things in here that we have to give time to. And so, starting in verse 14... Paul has been laying out some hard truth in this chapter. And now Paul is responding to further questions and criticisms that he's anticipating this teaching may garner. And he legit asks, is God unjust? Who can resist his will? This installment of Romans 9 will be working through those very same questions. As I said, these are questions that are okay to ask because they've been asked before. And these questions lead us to the word. Let us go to the word. So, is God unjust? Obviously, this is a rhetorical question. Of course not. It says in Psalm 136, Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. The Lord is good. One of his defining attributes is his goodness. How we understand his election is in the light of his goodness and his mercy. Election is an act of mercy. It says in Exodus 33, And I said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy on whom I show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me, and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I shall put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take my hand away, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. He's... God is talking to Moses. Moses has been on the mountain talking with God. And he's, he's seen God do incredible things. He's seen the, the Red Sea. He's seen the ways God has been providing for Israel. But he says, God, I want to see your face. And God said, you can't see my face. Because no man, no mere man, can look upon my face and live. God and man are not equal. There is a profound difference between us in our nature. God is holier than we can comprehend. When we are wicked, he is good. And Moses, Moses was in a lot of ways, was the moral leader. He was a very Jewish Jew, to put it one way. He was probably the best, he was the cream of the crop in a lot of ways. But Moses was not holy enough to look upon the face of God, the purity of God, to gaze upon his presence and live. But Moses was allowed to catch a fleeting glimpse of God's glory. But not the whole thing, because the surpassing difference between finite man and infinite God. 
And so God cuts out a little cleft of the rock, and he sticks Moses in there and lets his basically his presence pass over him. And notice the wording he says before, that I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. He says, I will allow my goodness to pass over you. I will show mercy. I will have compassion. God is the initiator of this bestowing of mercy. Mercy is not something that we obtain by our doing. It is something God gives to us. God starts the relationship. Just like Lazarus, God moved first. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Matthew, Matthew Henry puts it this way. Whatever God does must be just. Wherein the holy, happy people of God differ from others, God's grace alone makes them differ. In this preventing, effectual, distinguishing grace, he acts as a benefactor whose grace is his own. None have deserved it, so that those who are saved must thank God only, and those who perish must blame themselves only. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God is the determining factor. Salvation depends on God, not us. It says in Jonah chapter 2, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Amos chapter 9 says, For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. Like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. Salvation and judgment are both by God's hand. We like to imagine that, ju that judgment comes from God, but salvation is something that we walk into freely. But the Bible disagrees that they are both by the same hand. They're both by the hand of God. God is supremely sovereign over the affairs of the world. Nothing takes him by surprise. Such is the state of our hearts. He hardened the heart of Pharaoh, yet he softened the heart of Saul of Tarsus. The hard truth of God's election is the reality that God hardens some and softens others. It is something we cannot wrap our heads around. God does not save everyone. And in some ways, we would look at that and say that is unjust. And that's, that's, a, that's a valid question to ask. How does, this, how does this work? As it continues to say in Romans, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God has predestined some people to not receive life, then why do we experience judgment for it? For no one can resist his will. So why is it on us? And that's a very real question. But it also says in John 6 that no one can come to the Father except the Son draws them to him. It does say that. But then Christ also said, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Despite the fact that Christ said things like, no one can come to the Father except that I draw them to him. Despite the fact that he said things like that, he also encouraged the sinner to come. That he still beckons the sinner to come unto him. 
to come and be saved. So when we say the elect, all we mean is the people that actually do. And there's a duality there that's hard to wrap our heads around. But Romans 9.19 says, 9.20, I'm sorry, it says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Isaiah 64 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father. We are the clay, and thou our potter. And we are all the work of thy hand. Man, human nature is not good. The Bible uses strong words to describe human nature, and none of them good. It says in Jeremiah that the heart is full of deceit. It says in Romans that we are storing up wrath for the day of judgment, that we are under the dominion of sin. We're in bondage to sin. It says in Colossians that we are all engaged in evil deeds. Ephesians tells us we are children of wrath, and the illustrations just go on and on and on. At the bottom line is, if God is the potter and we are the clay, it means we are unable to craft ourselves into anything good or righteous. We are dead in sin. We are under the dominion of sin. And salvation ultimately saves us from ourselves. Who are we to talk back to God and criticize that sovereignty when we could not produce anything better? For there is no one who calleth upon thy name, that stirreth himself to take hold of thee. But it says in Deuteronomy 4 that those who cleave unto the Lord, who cling to God, shall live. That's a spiritual life, though. Because the Lord is king, and we are not. In his shaping of people, he has shaped some to receive salvation, and others to be examples of his judgment. And that is... And that's a harsh reality, that God has shaped some for judgment. And it seems that, like the puppet master, and we don't like that illustration. But the bottom line is, if we are sinful, then we don't want God. There's nothing in me that is good, it says in Romans 7. At the bottom, the bottom line is, that if God doesn't save someone, he's basically given them what they want. To be free from God, to be free from the need to come to Christ, from his holiness, free from his law. That's what we want. We are not good people. We are naturally opposed to all the things of God. And so we won't come to God willingly of our own devices unless God has opened our eyes, unless God has broken our heart and our will. And brought us to him. It says in Romans 9.22. What if God. Desiring to show his wrath. And to make known his power. Has endured with patience. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of his glory. For vessels of mercy. Which he has prepared beforehand. For glory. 
The question of God's sovereignty brings hard questions. If God is sovereign, why doesn't he save everyone? And that is a valid question. Why doesn't he save everyone? And we read earlier, is there injustice with God? The reality is that God is just, and he is merciful. In order for both to be known, they both have to be seen. If everyone was saved, it would cheapen that glorious grace of God, because that's the default position. We're, we all come into this world saved. It's just what he does. If God's default position was grace, so what? But if we started out as the enemies of God, dead to sin, engaged in evil deeds, and the cross of Christ was ultimately a mission of mercy for some who did not want what he provided, then it is all of Christ that we have received anything but what was due. That ultimately, anything, anything good that we experience in our lives is by the mercy of God. Because we are awakened people, the Bible says. And so, the question, why doesn't God save everyone, is on the same footing as, why doesn't God allow everyone to live to the age of 100? Why doesn't God allow everyone to live in a mansion? Why doesn't God allow everyone to be healthy? But the reality is, you can't base any argument on that without coming to terms with the fact that man is not good. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Enemies of God. That's us. James 4 says, You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The whole prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, claim blessings and promises is imploded by that one verse. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. That the only reason you want these things is because of your sinful nature. You want to feed your lust. You want to feed your sinful passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. To be at home in the world, to be at home in the flesh, in this human body, with all its vices, with all its selfish needs and wants, is to be an enemy of God. Because God says, die to yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And there is nothing in the flesh that aligns up with that. You cannot change that. No amount of Bible reading or prayer, devotions or sacrificial giving can will you into the kingdom of God. The deciding question is not whether you have the walk. If you can walk the walk and talk the talk. If you can do all the right things. But rather or not, you have Christ. We contribute nothing Jonathan Edwards says, to our salvation, except the sin that made it necessary. Grace is a gift. Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by grace through faith. 
and this is a gift from God, not an act of works, so no one can boast. All we have to do, since it is a gift, because if it was something we could bring about by praying a prayer or saying the right words, it would be a work salvation. It would be a product of works. It would be, I have a little bit of goodness deep down within myself with which I can save myself. That Jesus is just a tool that I can use to secure blessings for myself. But that is not the gospel. It says that grace is a gift. And a gift is not earned. A gift is not deserved. That is from the love of the giver. So all we have to do is recognize that the gift has been given. That's it. The Bible says repent and believe. It doesn't say ask Jesus into your heart. It doesn't say do all these things and you will be saved. The Bible says come unto me. When you realize that you cannot save yourself, you cannot make yourself savable, you cannot make yourself anything good by God's standard, aside from the sacrifice of Christ, you will come. And you will come not for the blessings, not for the promises, not for the angels or the signs or the healings. You will come for Christ because Christ is what matters. Pastor Conrad Mbewe in Zambia once wrote in an article, The sacrifice of God's Son on the cross is the fireplace where we warm our dead hearts toward God. That is what God does. When it talks about us being predestinated, about being called to him, that's what we're talking about, is dead people being made alive so that they can come to God. That is a hard truth, but this is the gloriousness of the gospel. That's why we call it amazing grace. Amazing love, how can it be? As Charles Wesley once wrote, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the cross? Amazing love, how can it be? That thou, my God, should die for me. For me. It defies all logic. It does not com compute. And this is one of the reasons that Romans 9 doesn't make sense, is if we are so wicked, how could Christ have died for us? And that's what makes it amazing grace. That we are so sinful, so wicked, so unholy and unrighteous and unworthy of being saved. And yet Christ has set his heart upon us. Not because of anything he saw in us, but because of his love for us. And he saved, he pulled us off that road, that we were on that truck, driving down the road, going off a cliff. And God intervenes and pulls us off the road and let's go this way. I'm taking you this way. That is what God does in salvation. He doesn't just knock at the door and, hey, can I come in? No, he grabs you out of the car and he puts you on a different road. Okay? Salvation is of the Lord. The gospel is not in my hands. I cannot will anyone to be saved. I cannot say the right words and make someone come to Christ. 
Because ultimately, it is God who justifies, it is God who calls, it is God who saves. All we can do is recognize that the gift has been given, repent of our sins, turn from our sins, believe in this gospel, and follow Christ. That's all we, that's all we can do, that's all we have to do, that's all we can do. Apart from God, we can do nothing. But if we abide in him, we will bear fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. This is the weight of the gospel, that apart from God, we can do nothing. And that's why we need Jesus. Because apart from him, the world is a mess. Part of the reason the world is in such of a state as it is, is because we need Jesus. And we have gotten it in our heads somehow that we don't. We don't need him in our schools. We don't need him in our governments. We don't need him in our families. And so we've taken him out of everything that matters. And what's left is a mess. And it's a mess because we've taken out the foundation that held up the house. We've taken out that crucial part of the table that holds the whole thing together. That we've pulled that strand out of the sweater. And now we're just watching everything unravel. That is what the world is right now. Is we're just unraveling the sweater and trying to figure out why it's unraveling. And we're pulling that thread. And we don't know why everything's coming apart while still pulling the thread. That is what is wrong with the world. The what is wrong with the world is sin. Sin that we love. The Bible says we are in love with the dark. And so Christ has to save us from ourselves. This is the gospel. That we who were dead to sin have been made alive in Christ for the glory of his name. That Christ, the perfect spotless son of God, was beaten, bruised, and crushed, all for the glory of the Father. That unrighteous people, that wretched sinners such as us, could be saved for the glory of God. That we can be vessels of glory. That the imperfect clay pot can glorify God through receiving his mercy. We've been talking about Hosea for some time. And it's awfully convenient that Hosea is referenced in this chapter. It says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be so called sons of the living God. Hosea was a prophet who was called to marry a harlot. There's a lot of debate among scholars if, as to whether she was a harlot from the beginning or if she got sucked into that life after they were married. But whatever happened, she got pulled into a very real level of depravity. And it comes to a point where Hosea's wife, her name is Gomer, she leaves. She leaves their, their kids at home and she just takes off. And Hosea goes and finds her. And he brings her back into the, into the house, into the family. He, he maintains that marriage. He redeems her. And this happened in the book of Hosea to model 
what God was going to do with us. That we are all the gomers of the world. That we are the harlot wife that has gone off and has been redeemed by the husband. The Bible says we're the bride of Christ if we are saved. That the church is the bride of Christ. We're the adulterous woman that has been redeemed by that faithful husband. That is the God I worship. That is the God that I serve. The God who calls lost people out of the dark into his marvelous light. It says in 1 Peter that my people will bear testimony to the excellencies of Christ, of the one who has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 27 <clears throat> says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be at the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So we get back to this, this trend of not all Israelites are Israel, as we read early in Romans 9. That, that's how he starts. And so there's a Israel the country, and there's Israel the people of God. That there's the political Israel, the national Israel. But then there's the spiritual Israel that is not about lineage or heritage, but those who are in Christ. And we all come into that Israel through Christ, through what he did on the cross. Through receiving his mercy, we become Israelites in a spiritual sense. And we will worship God in heaven as part of that Israel. But there are Israelites, true Israelites in Israel. And if we read the Old Testament, there's all this talk about a remnant. Much in the prophets talks about a remnant of the Israelites that will be saved. And it becomes clear in the New Testament that that remnant is the Jews that will receive Christ. The Jews that will believe in the gospel and will be counted in that spiritual Israel. And so even in the Jewish understanding, there is this question of why doesn't God save everyone? But we don't find that answer in just asking questions. We find it in the Word. It's very clear when we read the whole of Scripture that God is a saving God. And I can't answer for why some people aren't saved. I can't give an account to God's divine purposes. All I can say is that God is a saving God. And that any person who repents and believes the gospel will be saved. That except you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. But all who are born again will enter and see the kingdom of God. And Isaiah quotes, he quotes Isaiah. He says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If the Lord had not been our Lord, if we had not been part of that covenant that he gave offspring to, we would have been like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. We would have been like the wicked of the wicked. Because there is no partiality with God. That all will stand judgment. And some will stand before him as savior and some will stand before him as judge. But all will stand before God, either as Israel or as Sodom and Gomorrah.
and I encourage you to to give time to establish where you sit today. Do you know the God of the Bible that saves? Because that is a that is the primary question we all should ask. Do you know God? Do you have Christ? Because promises won't save you. Blessings won't save you. Signs and wonders won't save you. But Christ will save you. And I implore you to come unto Christ for salvation. For Christ. Verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? The Jews were given the law. The Gentiles weren't. But yet the Jews and the Gentiles are saved by the same Christ. And why is that? Because the Jews did not pursue that law by faith. It became a dead orthodoxy. It became pure legalism. But it, if it were based on works, they would have gotten it. And so Christ saves not by works, but by, by who he is. By what he has done. He's done all the work that's necessary on the cross. That was the mission of mercy that accomplished it. Redemption is accomplished, past, present, and future. And he quotes, <clears throat> as, as Paul goes forward, he closes with this. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That the law which is fulfilled in Christ, is a stone that people stumble over, a rock of offense. This is quoted also in, in the epistles of Peter. And this is a, a passage that gets quoted a lot. But the bottom line is, if you are trying to be good enough, the thing that's going to trip you up is Christ, who did all the work. You will not be good enough for God. You cannot be good for God, good enough for God. Because God is good, and we are wicked. And so we need not ch change behavior, not reformation of the hands, but reformation of the heart. We need a new heart, a new will. We need the, the Spirit of God to move in us and incline us to the things of God. And whoever believes in him, that is the rock who, tri who trips us over, whoever believes in him, will not be put to shame. You will not be rejected by God if you come to him for salvation. And I implore you to come unto Christ and be saved from you. To be saved from your sins, to be saved from your depravity, from all that is wrong with the world. You will not find relief anywhere else. That burden that you had when you turned this on today, it's not going to go away by anything you can do. You will never get rid of that sinful burden on your own, I guarantee it. But if you turn from your sin, you call upon the name of the Lord, you believe this gospel that Christ became a person, he came in human flesh, lived a sinless life, died on a cross for sin, rose triumphantly from the dead three days later, and now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, making intercession for his people. If you believe this gospel, you call upon his name. You, you call upon God. Turn from your sins and follow Christ. You will be saved. There is no if, ands, or buts about that. You will be saved from your sin.
because God has done the work that's necessary. All you have to do is follow him. He has called you to himself. He's calling you. And the question that remains is, are you going to answer that call? Are you going to respond? Because you will not be saved without a response. Until you repent, you sit under the wrath of God. Except you repent, you shall die the death, it says. Jesus himself said, except that you repent, you will perish. I implore you today, I encourage you to, to search the scriptures for Christ. To repent of sin. To turn to the God that can make you whole. It says in Ecclesiastes that the law of God and the fear of God. To follow God's law and to fear God, to honor him as God, makes us whole. And I implore you to be made whole today. God bless. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That is something that I've written, that is something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of his holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4. 4.